0: Hi, welcome to Cochrane Alliance Church and our online sermons. We are so glad you are able to join us. We pray that this sermon will be a blessing and an encouragement to you this week. Let's pray together this morning as we come into the message. Heavenly Father, we've just been singing about being in a holy moment and not wanting to leave your presence so Father, I pray that in this space and in this place today, we know you are here. You dwell within us by your spirit. When we gather together, we form the temple of the Most High God. But I ask that we would sense the holiness of being together, by your spirit drawing us together, by your spirit at work in us, making us more like Christ. And so Father, I pray today in this service, as we study your word together, as we look at the life of Mary the one you chose and highly favored. Lord, would we have our hearts renewed and encouraged. And I ask these things in your name, Jesus, amen. I was a few years into my time as a pastor at the Drumheller Alliance Church when I got the news kind of around September, October, that the lady who was volunteering to put on the children's Christmas play, who had done it for years and years and years, uh, was stepping down to take a well-deserved break from just the immensity of organizing a 30-minute Christmas uh, production with children. It's a musical and it's got acting. I mean, it's a whole thing to put on these children's productions, right? Like, the people who volunteer to do it deserve a ton of thanks because, it is an immense amount of work. But she said she just needed a break. I totally understood that. She was stepping down. And at the same time, I'd heard from a few parents that their kids were, you know, kind of looking to take a break from the Christmas production for a a time, and they were okay with not doing a Christmas play that year. So I decided, you know, okay, we're not going to do a Christmas play at all. I'm not going to go out and try and find volunteers to staff it. It's really hard. You need kind of a certain person or two or three people to take on the immensity of this project. So we're just not going to do a kid's Christmas play this year. Then I got phone calls. And uh, turns out, it was just a very small minority of kids who didn't want to do it, and the vast majority of kids were very disappointed that we were not doing a Christmas play, but they didn't start phoning me until about early November. That's pretty late to put on a Christmas production, and uh, I had no script. I had no director, I had nothing, but I did have a newly hired associate pastor. Uh, and that's sort of what associate pastors do. If you ever ask, you know, if you see an associate pastor, what do you do? Their answer is everything that everyone else can't do. That's what an associate pastor does. So I uh, sat down with the associate pastor and we decided, yes, we are going to get this play off the ground. It's the second week of November. We've got to get it done by the third week of December. We're going to do it. And uh, we didn't have a lot of money at the time as a church because we hired an associate pastor. So instead of purchasing a script, I decided I will write the Christmas play. <laughs> like, I know the story. I write sermons. How hard could this be? So I would write the script, and the associate pastor would organize and direct it with all the kids in the, in the Sunday school. And that was a very interesting experience. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know what? I think it surprisingly turned out pretty well. I mean... I think what saved us was the preschool kids were dressed up in cotton ball sheep costumes, which was adorable, and I mean, no matter what else is happening, you got these kids like sitting in the little cotton ball sheep costumes and rolling around and they got cotton ball fiber in the carpet and I spent about two hours trying to pick cotton fiber out of the carpet. That was really difficult. That probably saved the day, but here's the one comment, I mean, we got some comments, but the one comment I got, yeah. <laughs> The, the biggest comment I got was actually from our associate pastor, who's like, why in your script did you use the word virgin so much? <laughs> it's like, I didn't notice it. You know, apparently without meaning to, like every time Mary was introduced, I was like, the virgin Mary, the virgin Mary, the virgin, like really emphasizing this. And he's like, do you know how many children asked me what a virgin was? <laughs> Which is like, how do you handle that conversation, Right. So so I was thinking about this as I was getting the message ready this week, because we're talking about Mary this morning, and you know, in my script that I wrote, Mary is a really one-dimensional character. Her one defining trait was that she's a virgin. And I'm thinking, is that all I really know about Mary? Is that the only takeaway I have from the very woman who, like, carried the Son of God, birthed the Son of God, nursed Him, and raised Him, and cherished Him? And I kind of was thinking to myself this week, like, I have not given Mary enough thought. And I haven't really considered Mary's uniqueness in the narrative of the birth of Jesus. And I was like, why is that? And I I think I've come up with the reason for that. I think it's because part of the Protestant Christian tradition, which we are in... We tend to be nervous about the more Catholic view of Mary, which elevates her to some sort of like superhuman status with legendary stories and and even prayers being offered to her, and we would say, boy, that goes way too far. You know, that that she is, after all, only human. Yet in our pushback against what we see as an excessive Catholic view of Mary, I think we sometimes neglect how special Mary is. You know, growing up in the Protestant Christian tradition, you could almost get the sense that the only real defining trait about her is that she's a virgin, like my Christmas script did. And you almost get the sense that any young Jewish girl could or would do what Mary did. Yet if we go that route, that's far too ordinary. It's far less than how Scripture describes Mary. In fact, Scripture tells us that Mary is highly favored, and this is exactly how we're introduced to Mary. We pick this up in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So there's a key there. Like Mary is highly favored, and the Lord is with her. And then Mary's relative Elizabeth, who you might remember from last week's sermon, miraculously has conceived a child in her old age, is filled with the Holy Spirit when Mary goes to visit her, and she prophesies over Mary these words. It says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and in a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you obey. And so I think a correct and scriptural view of Mary is to recognize that she is blessed. And God chose her, not some other girl. And there would be presumably a reason for God choosing Mary and not just any girl from Nazareth. So for those who would say, you know, there's really nothing at all special about Mary. God just chose her. He could have chose any any girl in in Nazareth or any girl in, in the land. I would really disagree with that. I think that there's very much something special, something unique about Mary. Yet even as we acknowledge Mary's specialness, we also want to acknowledge that Mary isn't superhuman. She is still, even with being chosen and blessed by God, she's ordinary. She is a faithful, religious, Jewish girl. And so to me, Mary becomes fascinating because she's absolutely ordinary and absolutely extraordinary at the same time. Which is to me a picture of what faith is. Because our faith often looks ordinary. We believe, we follow, we trust, we hope through all the mundane things of life. And although our lives often look very ordinary, we also believe in this very extraordinary thing. We believe the very presence and power of God lives within us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But this indwelling presence of God does not deify us in an instant. Rather, it gives us power to live each day with faith, to do the work God calls us to do, to become more like Christ in the process of sanctification. And our faith reminds us that in all the In all of life, in the ups and in the downs and the joys and in the sorrows, in the ordinary and in the extraordinary, God is with us. Faith in the God who is faithful to us gives us power to suffer with perseverance, to go through chaos with calmness, and to face the unknown with peace. Now, faith is a very ordinary thing, and it's extraordinary as well. Again, when I think about the Christians that I've talked to who are going through such tragedy in their lives, but they'll kind of throw this out there, but my faith has given me peace, and it sounds so ordinary, but when you actually think about it, you're like, you shouldn't have any peace, but they say, my faith has given me peace in this season, and in Mary, we see her faithfulness in the ordinary leads to God's blessing her in an extraordinary way to bear and nurse and raise the very Son of God. I can't even quite imagine what that calling would be like. But one of the first things that we learn about faith from Mary, because today we're going to learn a little bit about faith by looking at Mary's faithfulness. And one of the first things we learn about faith from Mary is that saying yes to God does not mean your life here and now will be completely mapped out for you. It's not going to be free of worry or problems. And what saying yes to God means is that you can have faith you can be sure that God is with you in all the joys of life and in all the mundane moments of life and in all the crazy moments of life and in all the sorrows of this this life, God is with the faithful and God is faithful to those who are faithful. But as we look at Mary's life, we're going to see that faithfulness is no guarantee of life going how you expected it to go. Mary certainly did not expect this to happen. So let's get back into our text and see how Mary lives out her faith. The angel has just said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And here is Mary's response. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. I just want to pause here because notice Mary's first response to this great greeting. She's been called highly favored by an angel of the Lord, and she is greatly troubled. If she knows the history of her people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, which she most likely does, then she would know that often those those that God calls to serve him in extraordinary ways are often called to do things that are difficult and that change the whole trajectory and path of your life. She might be thinking of the prophets who commune with God in these amazing ways but are despised by the people. She might be thinking of people like Moses who have to go and stand before Pharaoh and have these showdowns and and speak and lead the people through the wilderness, and she's troubled. She's thinking, do I want this? Do I want this? She doesn't even know what this is yet when she's greatly troubled, but an angel appearing and saying, hey, God highly favors you. She's like, oh, okay, sounds like good news, but this is going to change everything. The angel goes on to tell her that her task is far greater than the prophets or Moses or Abraham. She's going to give birth to a son who is actually the son of the Most High God whose reign will never end. For a peasant girl from the nowhere town of Nazareth, this is incredible. And if an angel wasn't saying it, of course she wouldn't believe it. Now if you were here last week, you'll remember that Zechariah did not believe what the angel said. He could not believe that his wife Elizabeth would conceive a child in her old age. But unlike Zechariah, Mary believes that this will happen, but she has a very logical question. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Listen, Luke says she's a virgin a lot too. I've counted three in here, so I mean, I'm I'm in good company. This is how the angel answers her. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is now in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Unlike Zechariah, who immediately goes, there's no way, Mary is filled with faith in her response. Not only faith that what the angel said is true and will happen, but also, if you think about this, she's demonstrating faith that through the pregnancy, through the labor, through her entire life, God will go with her, God will uphold her, and that he will make a way for her. Because if Mary is really thinking about all of these things, about what she knows will happen, there's a couple of massive obstacles in front of her right away. There's going to be things that are difficult for her when she says yes, of course, to God. There's things that she can foresee, and then there's going to be other difficulties she doesn't foresee. But through it all, she's going to experience God's faithfulness to her, which in turn strengthens her faith in God. But here are some of the things that Mary will know right away are going to be difficult. She has a fiancé. She's a virgin who will soon be pregnant, and her fiancé is going to rightly have some questions. Now Mary knows that if the Lord does not intervene in some way, Joseph will have no choice but to break off the engagement. Because it would be a disgrace in that culture for him to be involved with a woman like that or to be attached to a woman like that, where people would say, oh, I see, I see what's going on here. As an honorable man, he would have had really no choice. And Mary also lives in a community and a culture where pregnancy outside of marriage is a shame and a disgrace. It does not happen. Not only to her, it wouldn't even be a disgrace just to Mary, but her whole family and her whole family line would be tainted if the Lord doesn't work on her behalf. If God is not faithful to her, then Mary might end up a single unwed mother living in that culture as people look down on her in disgrace and in shame. Maybe cast out by her family. So when Mary says, may your word to me be fulfilled, these are the big obstacles that she knows about that God will have to carry her through. Now, Mary has faith that God will be faithful in spite of seemingly impossible obstacles. In faith, she says, yes. So when I think about this as a takeaway, I think that so often we think that saying yes to God means the doors will just open wide. The path will be clear to us and the future will be clearly seen. But with Mary and with so many other people in Scripture who are called by God, we see that faith is not knowing how everything will work out. Faith is trusting that God is with us every step of the way. That's what faith is. Like if we're waiting to see every single detail clearly, we're going to be waiting forever. Faith so often is going, God is saying, go here. And that's going to move me into a place of uncertainty and unknown. And then I'm going to move there and then God's going to reveal the next thing to me. And that's where faith really comes in. So Mary has to have faith that with God nothing is impossible because there's going to be some immediate issues that require the intervention of the Lord. Now we have no real idea of how her family or her community reacted to this. We can assume they didn't just believe her story about an angel and a virgin conceiving Maybe that's why she goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, to get away from her community for a time. But the Lord directly intervenes in the case of Joseph, her fiancé. Now, it helps that Joseph is an honorable man, looking not only to do the right thing, but also looking to protect those in his care. And we read this in Matthew's Gospel. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And what you see here in Joseph is this tension. He's a righteous man who wants to do the right thing by the law, yet he has mercy. And his mercy is is what kind of, okay, I'm not going to make a big deal of this. I'm not going to, like, drag her out to be stoned like the Pharisees did with that one woman, but I'm going to just make it a a quiet situation. I'm going to back away, and everything's going to be okay. And you got to think divorce. They're not married yet, but this is how engagement worked in those days. Engagement was a lot more binding and a lot more permanent, so you don't just break up with your fiancé. This is like, the whole family has already been involved, the wedding is like sur- sure and certain, so this is a big deal, it's a divorce. So he's considering this. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from his sins. And Pastor Jason's going to expand on that next week. But... What we see here is God is faithful. He intervenes with Joseph, and he makes sure that Joseph sticks by Mary. And perhaps it's even Joseph's impeccable character and his betrothal to Mary that's part of God's decision to choose Mary. Joseph is sticking by Mary here. In this, and his desire to quietly divorce her is, is to protect her. Right, a woman he assumes must have been unfaithful to him, but he's like even if she's been unfaithful to me, I'm going to do as much as I can to honor her. And that's really a man you're going to want by your side if you're carrying the very son of God. This is a power couple. Right? You got Mary, faithful, blessed, highly favored, and Joseph, a man of impeccable character and honor. So, these are the obstacles that Mary knows about. Remember that song Mary, did you know? And, and quite some of the stuff in that song, I'm like, yeah, Mary did know that, but there's other things that she didn't know were going to happen. I, I really don't think Mary anticipated the rest of the events of her life with Jesus. Her life does not suddenly become glamorous and easy. There's other difficulties and obstacles that she never even saw coming. So the first obstacle or challenge that comes up is this, right around Mary's due date. So now she's been carrying for almost, for nine months, maybe, you know, right around the due date, the Roman emperor wanted to do a census. And everyone had to travel to their hometown to register, and Joseph and Mary are together. So Joseph had to go up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. And so Mary and Joseph have to travel to Bethlehem from Nazareth, And although Mary and Joseph have now seen and talked to angels, they're not being flown to Bethlehem in the arms of an angel. They're not being whisked away in the spirit and supernaturally arriving in Bethlehem. No, they're walking. It's about a four-day journey to Bethlehem. And although in all of our Christmas cards we always have Mary riding on a donkey, we don't actually have any evidence that she rode a donkey. We assume that she did because she's super pregnant. And that would be really nice. But they also don't have a lot of money. So we don't know if she rode a donkey. Maybe she did part of the way. Maybe she did all the way. Maybe she walked. It's not actually unusual for women in a lot of parts of the world to have to walk, even to go and carry water back, even in late-stage pregnancy. So despite her carrying the Savior of the world, she has to travel to Bethlehem. And if I was Mary, I might be wondering if there should be a few more perks for carrying the Son of God. Right? Like, if, if, if God can have me conceive a child supernaturally surely he could spare my swollen ankles a four-day journey, right? That's just how I'd be thinking. Like, okay, like the angels can appear, the child is in my womb, like supernaturally, but I've got to still walk to Bethlehem. And of course, we see that this child, the very son of God, is not born in a palace, not even in a cozy little room of somebody's house. He's born in the place where the animals are kept and laid in a manger, the feeding trough where the animals ate. This is a less than ideal birth story. I remember when we were having children and, and all our friends were having children at the same time and you're always like telling your birth story. Like, how did it go? And, you know, and the husbands are like, try not to like complain, but you're like, yeah, just sit in that chair for like 12 hours. is really uncomfortable. You know, trying not, to, it's not about me. Um, but this is a less than ideal birth story. Like you think about the, the story of this, a first time mother away from home and you're giving birth for the first time in a manger. Just imagine being a first-time mother in this situation. This is pretty scary, actually. It's dramatic, and it's less than ideal. Like I remember when uh, we were getting ready for our first child, and we went to like the prenatal classes or whatever they are. And you know, at the end of it, they're like, "Okay, so you want to be ready for your birthing experience. You want it to be like as just exactly how you want it. So have your to-go bag packed with your favorite clothes, maybe your favorite snacks. Uh, you know, have your music ready. Have your husband with an iPod. Like you want to make it a calm experience for you, which is like it's not going to be calm. <laughs> like, it's not. It's, it's a lie." It's not going to be calm. It doesn't matter what kind of music you're playing. You probably should play metal. Um, But I'm thinking about, like, the birth experience here is like, I don't think Mary anticipated that. I don't think when the angel showed up and was like, hey, the very Son of God, you're going to bear the very Son of God. His reign will never end. I don't think she's like, yes, so of course I'll give birth in a manger. That makes sense. So... We find then that faith doesn't remove us from the trials and difficulties of life. Faith is the assurance that in the midst of trials and challenges, God is with us. He is faithful and his promises will come to pass even when our circumstances fill us with fear. All his promises are yes and amen, but my goodness, in the human condition, sometimes our circumstances are fearful. And that's when we latch on to faith and we say, but God, you said... But God, you are faithful. But God, your promise is. So as scary as this moment is, there's another event that I think is maybe even more terrifying. It seems that Mary and Joseph settle down in Bethlehem for a time. About a year or two after Jesus is born, the magi, the wise men from the east show up, and they want to worship this child that they know is the true and anointed king. However, these men assume the king would be known by the current king, and they ask around Jerusalem, and they ask King Herod where this king is. King Herod, fearful of losing his power, decides to kill every male child under two years of age in Bethlehem. Yet God is faithful to Mary and Joseph. It says an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, telling him to escape to Egypt. And so Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. I don't know how much Mary knew about how all this would play out. I know the angel Gabriel certainly doesn't tell her, hey, by the way, get ready, you're going to be a refugee for a few years hey, get ready, you're going to have to leave in the middle of the night and run out of your house as men come to kill you, kill your child. I'm sort of assuming Mary never imagined that they would be refugees in Egypt as a mad tyrant king killed the infants and toddlers in Bethlehem. Yet even in this event, God protects them from serious harm. And, you know, I even have this speculation, like that gift of gold from the Magi sure came at a good time if you're going to be a refugee in Egypt. It's a good thing to have some gold on hand as you flee there. You're going to have to find a place to live. You're going to have to have food on the way. You're going to have to pay probably for a caravan or someone to protect you. But in these moments from Mary's life of faith, I think we get a glimpse into how faith works. God provided the means to escape, to safety. He provided the warning, but they still have to get there. There's this human, ordinary element in all of it. And so for Mary, we learn that circumstances cannot rob us of our faith when our faith is in the one who is faithful through all circumstances. But I bet you as you're running to Egypt for your life, it's really hard to remember that God is faithful in the midst of your circumstance. The reality of this life is that even the parents of the Son of God don't go through this life without experiencing upheaval and tragedy in some form or another. And the hope, as we saw last week, is not in this life, but in the life that is promised to come. We have hope in this life that God is faithful. He's faithful to his people, and he's faithful to his promises. And as we come to the end of our our sermon today, I think it's worth mentioning that life still holds some sorrowful moments for Mary. I'm sure there was moments of great joy in Mary's life. I'm sure that Mary had some wonderful moments. But there's still some sorrowful moments. Mary receives a word about this from a man named Simeon when they first dedicate Jesus when he's very young at the temple. And Simeon says to Mary, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he says this to Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And he's prophesying about what's going to happen. We know that at some point, Mary is going to watch her son be whipped. And paraded through the streets while mocked and spit on. Nailed to a cross and left to die. Isn't that horrific? A sword shall pierce her own soul too. And even before the crucifixion event, there's all the drama that surrounds Jesus in his years of public ministry. At one point, Mary and Jesus' brothers come to a house he's at because there's uproar, because some people are saying Jesus is out of his mind and others are coming to sit and learn from his feet. And I think how hard it would be for a mother... To see her son both loved and hated. To be slandered by some as demon-possessed. And then to be revered by others. And there's this weird mix and all this drama that's going on. She knows that this is going to happen, but I still think it would be hard to see. We also notice that Joseph is absent in this moment. And Joseph is absent outside the birth narrative. We don't hear about Joseph. What happened to Joseph? Is Mary a single mother of Jesus and his brothers now? You read about the event where Mary and the brothers come to find Jesus, and you go, wouldn't it be more appropriate for Joseph and the brothers to come? Like in that day and age, it's more appropriate for the the patriarch, the man of the family to come? Yet it's Mary and his brothers, and we just don't see or read anything about Joseph outside the birth narrative. And so as a side note here, we focused on Mary in this sermon, but I couldn't help think about Jesus' early life in all of this. Jesus, as a toddler, is a refugee, running to Egypt, staying there until the mad tyrant king is dead. Jesus probably knew also what it would be to be looked at a little bit sideways from family members who don't believe a word of Mary and Joseph's story. Jesus knows what it's like to work with his hands for a living. He knows what it's like to be in a family with a single mother. Joseph just doesn't seem to be around anywhere. Maybe Jesus even spent his 20s making sure the needs of his family were met. Jesus knows what it's like to be mocked and scorned by his community as he kind of rises up in prominence in his ministry and the people of Nazareth go, we know you, you're just Joseph's son. So Jesus really knows what it is to be human. And I think like not human like a rich billionaire ruler king who has not a care or need in the world with every need met and every desire catered to and not just human in the sense that, oh, we have a God who knows what it is to have flesh on. Like, ooh, that's neat, nifty, got fingers, you know. Like, that's not what it means when we say Jesus knows what it is to be human. What we actually mean is that Jesus truly has the human experience. Experiencing joy and sorrow and, and turmoil and, and goodness and, and sorrow and all of it. Jesus knows what it is to be a normal, ordinary human who probably had a harder life than a lot of us have had. A lot of people around the world can identify with Jesus because he knows just what life can be like and just how hard life can be. As we come back to Mary, we see that Mary is faithful, but her faith has not lifted her above or protected her from sorrow and loss. Rather, what we see in Mary is how faith is what we cling to, faith is where our hope is found when life is falling apart around us. And we see that God is faithful to those who are faithful. But his faithfulness does not always spare us from living life in a fallen world. Rather, it gives us power to overcome the trials of this life. And faith gives us the ability to remember there is a hope yet to come. And faith reminds us that God is faithful. In the middle of all these trials of life that we walk through, God is faithful. The earliest Christians understood that God's faithfulness was not the absence of trials But God's faithfulness was his presence and power in the midst of it. Paul writes, can anything separate us from Christ's love? Doesn't mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death. As scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Faith does not pull us out of living life, but faith gives us power in the midst of this life to walk through it with hope, with surety, with peace, and with, with the promise of what God, who God is. And the author of Hebrews reminds us of how faith carries us through suffering and trials. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and you were beaten and sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered with those who were thrown into jail and when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. All God's promises are yes and amen. His promise is that he has a place prepared for us. His promise is that even in this life, you'll receive power to move through this life, but you are united with Christ for the life to come. Those promises are never void. He always says yes, but as you've seen in the life of Mary or any of the people in Scripture, we still have to live life. We still live life, and life can be difficult. I'm going to call the worship team up as we close here, but... I want to kind of read about the last time we see Mary in Scripture. Mary, after all that's transpired in those 30-so years with Jesus, stays faithful. The last time we read about Mary in Scripture is in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus has just ascended to heaven. His followers are told to wait for the Holy Spirit to come, so they meet together in an upper room for prayer, and we read this. They all join together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. After all that Mary had experienced in her life, her faith is stronger than ever. She knows that life will not be easy. The future is often unknowable and hidden from sight, but she knows that through it all, God is faithful to his faithful people. And I just think what an encouragement Mary must have been to those early followers of Jesus. When the persecution comes, when the families reject them for their faith in Jesus, Mary is there. I remember when my family rejected me. I remember when we never expected it, but in the middle of the night, we had to run and flee and hide in Egypt. And for Christians who are gonna have to run and flee and hide as the persecution comes in, I imagine Mother Mary, basically the mother of the early church, is giving such words of comfort, sharing her faith and sharing her comfort because she experienced some of those very same things. I think she's a spiritual mother for the new members of God's family. I know that sometimes in life, we just want a crystal ball. And we want to know how our life will unfold. You know, how will this problem be solved? What's coming next? But for the Christian, we have faith and we have hope. We might not know the future. The path forward might seem murky, but we know that we are not alone. God is faithful to his people. God is with us. And he'll be with us every step of the way. And I know when you're going through the worst of the worst, it's really hard to remember this. But that's why we come together as a community of faith and we remind each other that God is faithful. Even in this, he is with you. And sometimes God is with his people through his people. Sometimes we are, you know, the representatives of, of Christ's compassion to each other. So in this Advent season, there's people who are grieving. There's people who've lost things. There's, there's sorrow in this season. And so I would just kind of encourage you, look around you to those who might be going through a period of darkness in this time and just surround them with the love of Christ that is within you and you can just pour that out upon them. Let me pray for you and then we'll worship together. Heavenly Father, help us to remember that you are a faithful God. You never forget us. You never forsake us. You are with us. So I ask, Holy Spirit, right now, would you come? We know you are here and present. We know that you are moving within us. But would you fill us new and afresh with your presence? That we might be light in the darkness. That we might experience the knowledge of your goodness. Maybe we're even going through something really difficult and really terrible and, and something unexpected. I pray that you would give us peace. The peace that comes from your very presence. And I pray these things in your name, Jesus, amen. Let's worship together.